I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Today marks the sixth straight day of demonstrations in Sacramento. Following last Saturday's announcement by the local DA that the police officers who shot Stefan Clark seven times a year ago would not be prosecuted. Clearly, we all know he didn't have a gun. But those officers at that moment in time clearly did believe that. People weren't surprised the DA declined to prosecute. A Sacramento Bee report found that since 2015, D.A. Schubert has reviewed 33 police shootings and hasn't prosecuted any of them. But Schubert also brought up Clark's previous arrest for domestic assault, suggested he may have been suicidal, and said the autopsy found drugs in his system. And that really set people off. They talk about make America great again. You're going to show it to my cousin Stanford. Make America great again, huh? Yeah, how about that? We're going to burn America. We're going to fuck this shit up, huh? How about that? Now, we expected T.A. Schubert to come through and not convict the officers. But what we did not expect for D.A. Schubert to come through and convict Stephon Clark of his own murder. Say that! Stephon Clark! After the DA's announcement, protesters marched through one of the richest neighborhoods in Sacramento. Move forward and a half step. Prepare to make arrests. The next day, California's attorney general, who had conducted his own investigation, said that he wouldn't be prosecuting the officers either. I'm here to announce today that our investigation has concluded that no criminal charges against the officers involved in the shooting can be sustained. And he doubled down on the idea that it was reasonable to inquire into Clark's past. You always, in any investigation, you always try to go backwards as well so you can understand what happened at the time of the incident and then moving forward. Is that what you're telling the community is that, you know, this may look inappropriate, this may look like an assassination of character, but this is just what we do. I'm not sure how to respond to that because if we were to have to engage in an investigation in the future where loved ones die and we only look at the facts of the incident moving and then moving forward, but never look back at what the perpetrators were doing before, I think we'd get crucified. And I want to say one final thing regarding the district attorney's evaluation the other day of the, the failure to prosecute in the Stefan Clark matter. She said quite clearly that the only thing that mattered in that analysis, the only thing that mattered was the state of mind of the officers, what they knew about the situation that night, and if they believed they were in danger, then they could shoot. Then why was she talking at such length regarding the victim of the shooting? Why was she telling all of the personal details about that poor man who was shot and killed by our law enforcement? Why wasn't she talking about the state of mind of those officers? She said it was the state of mind. Why wasn't she talking about their state of mind instead of that poor man that was killed? Thank you. You all should beware. When the district attorney starts prosecuting victims, we're all in trouble. Thank you very much. That's right!
We have guest Amar Shurgel, who is a Caldem eBoard member, member from District 9, which is the Sacramento area. He is a delegate for the Caldem Party and also an attorney who has done some pro bono work for uh, Black Lives Matter. And we're going to talk a little bit today about internal party politics and some of the other things that he's been working on. Welcome, Amar. Uh, welcome. Yeah, thank you for uh, making time. I should, uh, you know, we, we should mention that we're recording this on. Uh, Friday morning, which is uh, the end of a long day in New Zealand. The first of those two mosques that were attacked is behind me. Crime scene investigators are still here looking for more evidence, piecing together what happened. This as there are many memorials popping up all across this nation. There are more tears here than bloodshed. We're also learning more about the suspect. An alleged killer in court charged with murder in the deadliest mass shooting in New Zealand history. The main suspect, blurred here under New Zealand law, but identified by U.S. and Australian sources as 28-year-old Brenton Tarrant, appearing defiant, making a hand signal associated with white nationalism. Authorities believe he stormed two mosques in the southern city of Christchurch Friday, live-streaming the rampage, this image taken from inside the attacker's car, moments before gunning down men, women, and children killing at least 49 people. I saw my, my son in the mid of the hall and my wife back and crying and shouting and bleeding and I can't do anything for everyone. Relatives still waiting for news of loved ones as bodies are recovered. People don't know if their family members are alive or dead. And if they're alive, they don't know where they're based. An apparent anti-immigration, anti-Muslim manifesto was posted online ahead of the attack, as well as images of weapons and ammunition covered in anti-immigration messages on a Twitter account linked to Tarrant. The prime minister saying the weapons used in the attack were acquired legally and vowing to tighten gun laws. I can tell you one thing right now. Our gun laws will change. Australian media say Tarrant grew up in Australia, had worked as a personal trainer, and had traveled in Europe and Asia. Two other suspects are in custody, their role unclear, as police search a residence using a bomb disposal robot. Meanwhile, tributes pour in from around the world. Our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters, as well as our prayers. As New Zealanders unite in the face of extreme hate. With the death toll at 49, we also know more than 40 people were hospitalized. Many were injured with gunshot wounds. At least two remain in critical condition. Hundreds of family members are still waiting word of their loved ones. We expect the full list of the dead to be released later today. It's a horrific uh, massacre. Uh, and, I, and I know you join me in, in sending our, our prayers and thoughts and and, and heartfelt condolences to uh, to Muslims everywhere. They're all yeah. yeah they're, they're all feeling the brunt of that as well. Indeed. In fact, let's talk about that for a second. We had the breaking news this morning. Um, I read it before. In fact, I got on the podcast with you. So it's horrific that I'm going to call this guy a white supremacist who opened fire on a mosque in New Zealand, killing uh, dozens. But and then he went to a second mosque. I'm now learning, but. I want to ask you, um, 
it seems to me that the way, and it's not just the United States, obviously, this is a global issue, but it's often the way that if it's an activist for Muslim cause, if it's an activist for Black Lives Matter, they're called thugs and terrorists. But when a white supremacist does something equally horrific or many times, in my opinion, worse, they're never called terrorists. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I think it's, um, we're getting to a point where I think that's starting to change, but I think historically, you know, terrorists were associated with being uh, people who had uh, dark complexions, just the way it was. But, you know, we look on uh, CNN's website this morning, they're calling it a terror attack. I think that's uh, starting oh, okay. to change, you know, that, they, that they're recognizing okay. it as, as what it is, whether it's uh, Boston or whether it's New Zealand or whether it's... Um, you know, Palestine or whether it's India or Kashmir, um, people that attack innocents uh, without regard um, are terrorists. These are terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. And white supremacy is a terror is an agent for terrorism. Absolutely. I had not seen that CNN had uh, shifted that terminology and said terrorists. That's good to hear because there that needs to change. In the past, it's been um, exceedingly obnoxious and one-sided in in the way that they only treat folks that are brown or black as terrorists when most of the terrorist attacks that have happened have been at the hands of white nationalists, white supremacists. Um, One of the most offensive terrorist groups in our history is the KKK. And I think that uh, under Trump, we've seen a lot of this reignited and become emboldened again. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. The United States has for decades been, um, you know, valued its ability to export its culture. And that used mm-hmm. to be mostly movies, music, Disneyland. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, with the rise of Trump and, you know, the power of the Internet, we're seeing that our ability to export white supremacy is now yeah. a threat to other nations in the same way that, um, you know, the, the uh, white supremacist movement here tries to attack others to, you know, about what they're bringing into the United States. What's true now is that we're exporting some of that stuff and we're seeing that right. in New Zealand today. Yeah, what happened in uh, New Zealand is both just depressing and shocking. And I think uh, tan- tangentially, we sort of have to have a conversation here in the United States about um, geopolitics and what uh, what blowback we're experiencing for some of our actions in the Middle East and some of our actions abroad because um, oppressed people will fight for their freedom. And when we go into these uh, other countries and we invade them because we want their oil, we want to push for regime change because we don't like their elected governments, etc., there's always a consequence to that. It doesn't work to justify the terrorist actions of groups like Hezbollah, per se, but I think it is um, it does work as an explanatory factor as to why we've gotten to the place that we've gotten to. You know, and I think part of the other problem is also the colonization that's happened. Um, we're still unwinding all of the uh, colonization that occurred. Yeah, I think we need to be careful when, you know, we're talking about different acts of terrorism around the world that we're very specific mm-hmm. about who the actors are and that in in all societies, there are these groups that radicalize and look at how they radicalize and that there yeah. is a, a colonialist element um, to most mm-hmm. of these issues around the world. And the residue continues um, yeah. to resonate today. Whether we're talking about Palestine or Kashmir or other places around the world. Um, 
you know, we have to look at the real causes and, and not repeating that kind of colonialist attitude today. Right. And you mentioned uh, Kashmir uh, in India, and that is also an area that has been uh, deeply affected by colonization from the British Empire. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of Americans are just not clear on what the facts on the ground are because our media doesn't really discuss what's going on in these areas. They don't discuss what's going on in Palestine. They get one side of the story. And it's unfortunate because it leaves our... uh, it leaves our constituency with with less information to make good decisions on. And they, you know, all of this outcome this past week with the past two weeks with APAC, I think is a prime example of that. You know, it's you have a lobbyist group that's influencing the geopolitical factor, but the conversation sort of gets turned around and changed into something else because it suits the moneyed interests. Agreed. Agreed. There's no one nation which stands alone in this regard. Yeah. So you are an e-board member, which is an executive committee member um, as far as delegates go. Can you explain for our listeners what exactly an e-board member does within the um, internal body of the CalDem politics? Sure. So we're talking about the California Democratic Party, which controls the Democratic institutions within the state, which is separate from the DNC, the Democratic National um, that looks at right. um, national issues. So I'm a elected delegate from my assembly district representing 100,000 uh, Democrats you know, from South Sacramento to Lodi. But in addition to being a delegate to the California Democratic Party Central Committee, I'm also an elected executive board member, the only member from my assembly district, um, so if we think about the California Democratic Party, there's 3,000 plus delegates, and then there's 1,000 um, plus executive board members. Um, we have a, a an annual convention, which all delegates go to, and then there's two executive board meetings on top of that, where just executive board members go. And um, right. when, when, it's, when you're not at the convention, the executive board member can do a lot of the same things that a uh, a convention can do but what they can't do is uh, is handle the endorsement process and then the executive board has some special functions regarding oversight of officers removal of officers and some other sort of internal um, uh, duties that the regular delegates don't have right so uh, let's talk a little bit about those other duties so you looks you look at bylaws rules committee um, recommendations I know that come up the ranks and uh, were you an e-board member the last um, brief, before this previous election cycle or are you newly elected to the e-board yeah this is my uh, third cycle as a delegate my second cycle as an executive member Okay, excellent. So you've seen um, a lot of the things that have gone on the last few years. What were some of the challenges that you faced as a progressive on eboard? Well, I think you know the California Democratic Party, like a lot of the Democratic Party across this, across the country, is going through some really tough changes. So um, my first term as a delegate, the party was still very much an establishment and elected official run organization with relatively little um uh, you know power real power mm-hmm. um to mm-hmm. the you know grassroots left-wing progressive slash bernie crat 
wing of the party because it didn't just didn't exist yet in a real way. Mm-hmm. So after after the uh, Bernie Sanders uh, wave, uh, we saw a, a real growth in activism within the party, and we took over um, more than half of the delegate spots across the state um, through our local elections. So that is naturally going to build some tension as those people come in, uh, myself among them, and want real change. We want more um, power to the grassroots. We want to stop um, taking oil money, taking private incarceration money. So there's some real discussions right. about those. And then, and then now we've seen the, in the last election some pushback as um, elected officials who take that kind of money see that we're a threat and start pushing back. So those things are playing out in caucuses within the party, resolutions within the party. And I think it's a national, very, or sorry, a natural, very healthy part of the political process. And uh, quite frankly, I think we're winning. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, you guys had a great, uh, up in Northern California, let's talk about the caucuses or the, um, actually the election meetings as they call them. Um, for a second, we had a lot of shenanigans down here in Southern California, but you folks up in the uh, North area had very clean elections from what I could tell. And I know I had spoken to Karen Bernal after uh, after a lot of the meetings, and she was talking about uh, a system that she had helped develop that is that they were using up north that was allowing them to not only verify voters to make sure that they, A, were a member of the Democratic Party, and B, lived in the district. But what was, I thought, a good outcome of that was that she was able to um, catch voters, so to speak, that were not, neither of those things and, and force them to re-register or to register as a Democrat. So there's a benefit here for the party that a lot of the establishment doesn't seem to want to acquiesce to. And I'm not clear if it's that they want to maintain power as a more important um priority for them or what the situation is. But we had we had a lot of cheating that uh, has been confirmed down here in Southern California. And it's very disheartening because I think not only is it, you know, ethically wrong, but I think it disenfranchises a lot of the voters. And I don't think that they're really thinking through the um, longer consequence of that. So did did you have any intimate knowledge with the system that they were using to verify voters? And what was your experience in Sacramento? You know, Sacramento um, is blessed and cursed because of the, the capital is uh, right in town. The, the local yeah. progressive activist movement has long experience with sort of the infiltration of capital staffers <laughs> into our process and their sophistication yeah. in manipulating the process. Um, and because of that, we have a, a history of you know, leadership within the county Democratic Party, but it's uh, Terry Shands now or Carrie Asbury before her, and you know other leaders like Eric Sunderland, who's our regional director, and Karen Bernal, who's local, they have worked very hard and, and implemented a system which predates me, where every single ADAM, every single voter gets put through the PC, the online registry, they check where they're from, whether they're registered, help them register if they're not, and make sure that right. the voters that we count are actual eligible votes. And that's not happening in other places. I know that Eric traveled to a couple other sites to help them. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he can't be everywhere all the time. Uh, but I think right. uh, Eric Sunderland is working on that with the party to, um, to see that happen elsewhere. And I think the, the chair candidates are, are open to that. And I think we're going to be seeing that more and more where 
every voter gets checked. Because if we can do it in Sacramento, there's no reason it can't be done uh, everywhere else. You know, that's right. You're making a good point because the, you know, I um, followed up with some of the L.A. County um, Dem Party officials because I wanted to get their side of the story, even though I had witnessed um, some of this firsthand. And it seemed to me that the only excuse or the only reason they gave was that it was just too cumbersome, which I don't I don't buy it. They, in fact, at our AD 51, they had started out at the beginning of the day checking uh, voters and then an hour in, just everything disappeared and they, it was just a free for all. It was crazy. I think it is a function of, you know, where long term activists um, come from as far as, as far as their perspective. If, mm-hmm. if you believe that it's hard to get grassroots people involved, then things like this, which require a lot of um, you know, uh, hands on deck look yeah. impossible. But if you come mm-hmm. from the Bernie Crap movement and and you say that, all right, we need 15 people to show up to check people in, that's the simplest thing for us. Okay, it might be hard to raise a million dollars for a campaign, but what we know how to do is to get people out to volunteer and and do things like knock door to door or register people or sit at the desk and check people in. So if you tap into that movement, Checking every voter everywhere in the state is simple for us. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, and there's and again, there's that um, that benefit that you actually increased your registered amount of voters in the state. So to me, it's a win win. But I tell you, this is the pushback that I got from the establishment here and they didn't seem at all interested and um, in changing anything. So, you know, and let's talk about the breakdown of that. So just for listeners that are not familiar with the party structure. Uh, so a third of the delegates in the state are elected officials. Another third are appointed. So we already have at this point, two thirds of the delegates being controlled by elected officials. So this last third that we're talking about right now really are the grassroots of the party. And I think it's really important that they uh, they remain the grassroots of the party, that they remain actually responsible for the constituents in each district. And we've seen recently over the last decade, elected officials running slates. Um, so these are so they're trying to, in my opinion, stack the deck with friends and and, um, and associates and aides, whatever else. So now they want to really hog up the entire delegate system. And I don't this really bothers me because I don't think it's. I don't think this is what we represent as Democrats. I think the whole point of being part of the Democratic Party is to be democratic. You know, we fight voter suppression in the bigger picture, but this is what we do internally. This doesn't make sense to me. Do you have a strong opinion on that as well or no? Yeah, I do. You know, but first slight a slight correction. The the three different thirds are one third elected officials and their appointed delegates, one third county committees. Um, and and okay. the folks at the county committee, county committees who they appoint, and then one third, approximately, the elected delegates. And that division was arrived at through a lot of hard internal discussions about what the appropriate balance should be. And mm-hmm. then you know gave, we left one third to be elected, um, so that you know the grassroots voice can be heard apart from elected officials. The problem is when we, you know, two elections ago when the Bernie Kratz took over the elections across the state, mm-hmm. elected officials yeah. didn't like it because now they had to listen to us. So and now yeah. you, you quite rightly point out that their response now is to try to take over that part of the party also. And we're going to yeah. see now as, as we go to convention, there's going to be some serious discussions again about 
how they're allowed to be involved, elected officials, whether they should be involved, whether they should be allowed to endorse, and if they can really have it both ways, if they can control their own delegates and then also control local elections and whether that's good for the health of the party. Sometimes elected officials want something and they think it's a good idea, but long-term it's actually going to hurt them and the actual things that they support. So we're going to have that discussion. And if it's more than discussion, if it's a, a, a you know, a bare knuckle brawl at, at the floor of the convention, we're right for that too. Yeah. We, being that I got decked out our, our delegate, it could turn into a bare knuckle brawl. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, some of the elections were brawls. I mean, there were assembly members yeah. bringing in um, uh, buses and having free breakfast, you know, adjacent, and and things got, uh, you know, pretty tough out there somewhere. And I think you were right yeah. in the midst of it as far as I hear. That was wild. <laughs> I, I always had this uh, idea that if I ever got punched at any political uh, event, it would be by a neo-Nazi, not not a fellow Democrat. You know, and it was it was funny because I just I was covering the caucus because I thought it would be interesting um, because I don't think these sort of low level elections get a lot of media coverage. But I do think they're important because they are the base that builds up into the bigger issue um, things that occur even at the presidential primary level. So. I thought I'd cover that just so uh, more people would understand the internal party mechanisms and maybe want to get involved. And little did I know <laughs> it would be, there would be a, a bigger uh, proxy battle going on between the progressives and the establishment. So it's um, it should be an interesting election cycle. And I think that these folks uh, were very concerned, like you said, about the grassroots having too much power. But what I wanted to ask you, Amar, is, is this. I still don't understand what they're so afraid of. It seems to me on a very superficial level, they should understand that having the grassroots involved in policymaking and within the party helps them win elections because the more the more a voter feels attached and understood and listened to, the more likely they are to come out and vote and participate and canvas and do the volunteer work that needs to get done for us to be successful. So what are they so afraid of? Are they more afraid of progressives than they are of the GOP? Or is this just? This is just raw, unadulterated self-interest. If you're an elected official, Mm, you work very hard to get in that position. And anything which alters the balance is something that you don't like. So, you know, they like the way they are. And they wanted to stay that way because that's how they got where they are. And it's. It is a classic conservative ideal that you want yeah. things to stay the way they are, and elected right. officials become conservative when they're connected to the power structures that got them there. That's true. So, and they don't even see that that's a conservative ideal. That's the odd thing. I think, um, <laughs> you know, but I think they've also been embracing some other conservative ideals to stay in power. And it's just, you know, it's not all of our elected officials, obviously. We, we do have some good ones, but it is a certain percentage of them. You know, we had down here in um, the L.A. area, we had them engaging in bo- ballot harvesting, you know, uh, the last primary cycle. 
which was really disturbing for me because, you know, every time the Democratic Party does something like that, the GOP finds it and blows it up and does it much bigger and better than we ever do. It's, you know, the slippery slope. And sure enough, we had what happened in North Carolina on the other side of the country um, this last uh, election. So I just I think we need to be really looking at ourselves and be pure in our politics and being pure in our ethics and politics is what makes us fit to fight. And I think if we're being hypocrites or not seeing that, then it's going to be a problem going forward. And I just I don't know. I don't know if this stuff has always been going on and I've just been more aware of it the last few years, which is, I think, probably the case. And I think that's true, I think, for a lot of political activists that, you know, Bernie running for office and going through that 2016 primary was a really big awakening for a lot of folks. I think, um, you know what I'm saying? I think some of what the DNC was doing was just like, what? You're my people. What are you doing? You know, sort of a light bulb moment. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, obviously, hashtag not all elected officials, but um, but clearly, uh, you know, electeds need to be more attuned with what's going on in the grassroots um, because it's yeah. speaking to the real problems of the country. And I think you're right that, um, you know, we're noticing it more. But it's true that it's also out there more. When you see this level of dissatisfaction with both parties, with all types of elected officials, with Congress, and it's reaching into the previously apathetic um, young age groups, you know that there's a shift in this country which can't be ignored. And if you're ignoring it, you're doing a disservice to the nation itself. Indeed, I have to agree with that. So what's next for progressives in this state? Um, so even though we're considered a blue state, more or less, we have a plurality of Democrats. Um, I think a lot of them, as we're talking about, are corrupt corporatists. They take a lot of donor money from corporations and they do the bidding of their donor class as opposed to the constituents that they're supposed to represent. So um, what are your, some of the ideas that you have for fixing that or changing that? I think California's got to continue to lead. So we've, uh, the Democratic Party's done a good job getting rid of uh, oil money, for instance, and making it now more difficult for the party to uh, spread that oil money around the state to mm -hmm. different elected officials. That's good. We've gotten rid of private incarceration money. But there are more big corporations. You take a look at uh, some of the donations that the, the state party has received um, even over the last several months. And some of those are things that we don't want to be involved in. So I right. think all of the chairs are open to the idea that there, we need a formal process, not ad hoc at the whims of the chair, um, a formal process where we look at the type of money we take and stop mm -hmm. laundering the money that is inconsistent with the values that um, compose our platform and our bedrock ideals that we knock on doors and talk about. You know, we have to actually be the uh, values that we say we profess. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think we uh, haven't always been true to that. And I think it's a problem. And I think it's why a lot of progressives are super angry right now because they want to believe. I think they internally, I know I do, want to believe in the party and the party's ideals. And then when they fail, it's just hugely disappointing. We, ex I mean, because I think we expect that from the GOP. So when the GOP does the same thing, it's like, yeah, okay. I expected that. They own it. They That's who they are. But when our own folks engage in some of the same behaviors, it's really painful. It's like, oh, come on, man. That's not who we are, is it? 
Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your activism with um, civil rights up in Sacramento. So you were an attorney by trade. Um, and I saw the video of you where you gave testimony to the Sacramento City Council on uh, uh, death, uh, death on Stephen Clark and also the arrest of uh, the protesters and activists um, for peaceful protests. So there's a couple of things going on here, obviously. Right, so um, this is something that really predates Stefan Clark. Um, the district attorney here, for instance, has had 30 plus opportunities to um, prosecute similar instances with other officers, wow. whether they're Sacramento County or Sacramento Police Department, and she's failed to prosecute any of them. So, you know, when I marched with Black Lives Matter, it predates Stephon Clark, and this was an egregious incident which caught a fire across the country. But there have been others like Joseph Mon and, and you, know, you know, plenty of others that we can uh, talk about. So the Black Lives Matter movement here has been working on all of those. And, you know, my work, you know, as an attorney, my, my, my practice is personal injury and wrongful death, but I spent probably half my time on these civic activism issues. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of our jobs as, as a Democrat or as a person of color is to be an ally to Black Lives Matter. And that's why I, I get out there in the streets and march with them. And that's why I show up for testimony. And I, I think it's important, you know, for your listeners that, you know, we hear sometimes about Black Lives Matter and people say, oh, they're radical. I saw them post one thing I didn't agree with, and I saw them post this other thing, so I'm not going to march in the streets. But that's not what it's about. There's no organization you agree with 100%. You don't agree with Bernie Sanders on everything. Right. Our closest right. allies around the world, we don't agree with. But what we know is that the African-American community in Sacramento and across the nation is suffering. They're in pain. Yeah. And when you see that, you join with them, you stand with them, you ask um, how you can help, and you don't bother with nitpicky criticisms on some Facebook post some member posted sometime. You, you do the hard work and you try to make things better in the community. And that's what I try to do um, with regards to, to Stefan Clark and Black Lives Matter here. Um, but we can talk more about the specifics of my testimony if, if you'd like. Yeah, I'd like to actually. I think um, a lot of folks might not be familiar. You know, it's it's. I didn't realize you had thirty previous cases. Uh, that, so obviously, these are things that are happening that are not getting reported. And it sounds to me as if is the Sacramento Police Department or is the, are the sheriffs there too? Probably for the county. Uh, you know, almost as if they're more violent than the LAPD is in some respects. And the LAPD is pretty bad. Let's be honest. What are some of these other cases? Yeah, I mean, there there are. I mean, when the one which predates Joseph is, uh, sorry, predates Stefan Clark is the Joseph Mon case, a man who is clearly having um, a, a mental breakdown on the streets of Sacramento. And then a number of officers did, ex did exactly the right thing as far as um, creating a perimeter, keeping the, the citizens of Sacramento safe without hurting this man. But then two horribly trained, and one maybe in particular, a horribly trained, and perhaps poorly motivated um, officers arrived at the scene um, and failed to follow the example of others and shot that poor man. And I wow. think that's what we see across the country is that some officers do a great job, many officers do a great job, but there's enough that um, are maybe dealing with their own mental issues, are poorly trained, 
that arrive on the scene, that shoot um, in circumstances that are inappropriate. And then right. what's worse, perhaps, is that um, the, the legal system we have set up is incapable of correcting it. And we don't right. have yet, we don't yet have the political wherewithal to, you know, prioritize de-escalation in a way that will change outcomes. And, and, and right now we have AB 392 in, in, in uh, the capital in California that might provide um, some respite. But the truth is we need a lot of work everywhere to change training, to change the type of officers that are on the streets so that we have better outcomes. When you look at, you can randomly search YouTube videos in Canada, in United Kingdom, when you have, you know, folks that are that have, have a mental breakdown, that have huge machetes. In the United States, those people are shot every time they get within striking right. distance of an officer. In those other countries, those people survive. The law enforcement is yeah. not armed. And they managed to right. subdue those same people. And it's, it's, you've got to credit the bravery and training of those officers. And it's something that we're not replicating in this country. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point that you're bringing up. And, and this is true. And I don't know that a lot of Americans realize this. A lot of the law enforcement in Scandinavian European countries are not armed. So that's, you know, can you imagine in the United States not having armed police officers? It'd be crazy. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, we have down here in LA, we had our, our recent election, we had a Bernie Krat actually uh, won election to uh, LA County Sheriff. So not only is this the first Democrat we've had as a sheriff in, God, you know, a century, I'd want to say, but he's a Bernie Krat. He's a progressive. Uh, one of the flyers that he put out during the campaign actually said abolish ICE. I kid you not. Can you imagine? It was amazing. So- amazing. Yeah, it's change, really it's a, a shift, a change in the guard. So I'm wondering how much effect uh, this will have on the system. I feel like this is one example, and I feel another example is the civil rights attorney that got elected in Philadelphia for the DA's position. Well, will a defense attorney with a long record of standing up to prosecutors and police soon head one of the nation's most busy district attorney offices? In Philadelphia, civil rights attorney Larry Krasner is poised to become the city's next district attorney after overwhelmingly winning the Democratic primary last month. Philadelphia is a solidly Democratic city, and the odds for winning November's general election are in Krasner's favor, with Democrats commanding a 7-to-1 registration advantage. Over his career as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney, Krasner has represented protesters with Black Lives Matter, Grannies for Peace, ACT UP, Occupy Philadelphia, and other progressive groups. He's a longtime opponent of capital punishment who's promised to never seek the death penalty. Philadelphia jails more than more people than any other city in the Northeast, and Krasner is on record opposing police stop-and-frisk policies. He told The Intercept he hopes to create a team that will investigate and prosecute police and public officials for abuses. This is a clip from an ad released by Krasner's campaign. When I heard Larry said he was going to run, I said, he's going to run for DA? Perfect. I'm in. I think unlike any other candidate in the DA's race, Larry is calling for a new approach. I've been aware of Larry Krasner since the 90s when he was defending protesters involved with ACT UP. I knew Larry because he and I worked together pro bono in representing activists. He's the attorney for Black Lives Matter. I think maybe we should look at 
getting um, d- d- folks with a different mentality into these positions. And that's maybe how we force change. In other words, you know, Alex comes in and he changes the department. Like one of the things I had him on the podcast, one of the things he talked about was this thing you're talking about. He thinks the biggest issue is training, wrong training and lack of training. And he would agree with you. He's in these situations, the first impetus shouldn't be to shoot somebody. It should be to deescalate the situation. And in fact, he was, um, he told me a story about he was on uh, working when his shift, when the protests broke out here in LA after the Rodney King trial verdicts came back, not guilty. And he, you know, told me a story about he, he and his uh, partner deescalated a situation where some kids were becoming involved in the riot and they started burning down, you know, starting a fire, breaking into the windows, whatever. He got them to stop and go home. Like he de-escalated. So his, his, but again, he was a sheriff's department. So he wasn't in the city as the county areas were. So it was, it was at that point spreading out. But I feel like if this to me is just a viewpoint, it's the way you see our judicial system is the way you see enforcement. And you have one, the one side that's just been perpetually tough on crime for a long time now, and whether it's the DA's office, the attorney general's office or the police force and they've just become more military, military, militarized. I couldn't get that out. <laughs> um, versus the other side that I'd like to see more folks involved with, which is the civil rights side and viewing this differently. So in your opinion, Amar, how difficult is it to get these folks elected in, into these positions? And do you think this is a good way for us to go about um, changing the way the system runs? Yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do to replicate the success that you've had in Los Angeles or in Philadelphia. Um, you know, and there's structural problems with the elections. That maybe the the county system is, um, you know, no longer effective. Where you have a county district attorney and a county sheriff that are responsible and for enforcing, you know, um, the cities, but the bulk of their votes are coming from rural areas. And and maybe that okay. just doesn't match anymore. Maybe that just doesn't match yeah. anymore. But you know that that's not about to get fixed. So in the meantime, we just need to be better grassroots organizers. And in Sacramento, last time around, that we had a, a candidate that received good funding, but this is his first time out as a candidate. And sometimes it's hard to find candidates. And I think next time around, right. given the district attorney's actions, we're going to see uh, another candidate and more funding and more awareness, quite frankly, of the problems mm-hmm. with our district attorney. I think. You know, the district attorney here in Sacramento has been a friend to, you know, my community, the sick community on hate crime issues and um, on, on a lot of different things. But this is one area which is obviously she has handled incorrectly. Even yeah. if we give her the benefit of the doubt and say, look, the laws as written, you, she couldn't get a prosecution. The manner in which she held her press conference after making that decision was it's just it's misconduct it's unforgivable for a for an elected official and and to go into the specifics a little bit once she decides that she is not going to prosecute that these officers are not going to go in front of a jury and the jury's never going to hear any information her conduct in revealing all the private embarrassing unfortunate details of the victim is unconscionable right. When we would never disclose the sexual history of a rape victim 
after we decide, look, we just can't prosecute for a number of different reasons. We would never expose the history of a family dealing with child abuse just because we, for whatever reason, can't uh, convict the child abuser. We just would never do that. So I don't know why it's okay for this district attorney to say and re to say these horrible things about a victim, the deceased, to reveal text messages, to talk about his wife, I'm sorry, the mother of his kids, to talk about his children in a way that obviously puts the family through even more trauma. And we got to make sure that we have elected officials who understand that you cannot do that. Yeah, because they're trying to put the victim on trial instead of the, the the behavior of the police officers. And it was the same thing with Rodney King. It's been the same thing with a million of these situations because the police officers were not justified in killing the person. The only way that they could really defend the police officers is to turn it around in the public eye and make the victim of the shooting a bad guy. So, you know, if they make the victim a bad guy, then it somehow justifies what the police officer did. So it's another form of manufactured consent in a way. And this has been the playbook that they've used for a long time now. And you're right, it's disgusting and it needs to stop. And I was um, happy to see that speech you gave in regards to what you're talking about right now, because didn't she even say in her speech that she didn't, that she thought the only thing that was important was the behavior of the police in that situation, yet she continued to go on and talk about the victim? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a law in California right now. We're working to change it, but the law is that if an officer reasonably believes in his own or her own mind that um, their life or the life of others is at risk, then they can shoot and kill. And we're well, we're going to change that so there's an ob objective standard instead of subjective right. so that you can only right. shoot when it's necessary, when somebody that's believes right. that that's the only way um, you can get out of the situation. So, so if that's the law now, that the only thing that matters is the state of mind of the officer, what the officer knew, then mm -hmm. it is completely inappropriate for anybody to talk, especially in, in the press, about things that the officer had no knowledge of. It doesn't matter what the victim was doing the night before or two nights before right. or their relationship with their kids or their family. If the officer didn't know about it, then, that's, then that stuff is irrelevant. So we, we need um, elected officials that uphold those values. And I think it's particularly important for a district attorney. It is one thing mm -hmm. for media or a police union to drag victims through the mud. That's horrible, but that's one thing. But a district attorney has an affirmative yeah. duty to victims and to the community, right. not to hurt and re-injure the victims. So so that was just, it was unconscionable. And it, it made me upset. You saw uh, my testimony there in front of the Sacramento City Council. I was pretty upset about that. But I think, you know, we are seeing a small change. After that testimony, after that public hearing, we saw Alan Warren, a city council member, um, speak out and finally say that that was inappropriate and there needs to be change. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you can have one, you can have more. And, and I hope there will be more that will make sure that type of um, inappropriate conduct by district attorney or law enforcement won't be accepted anymore. 
Right, as it should be. Now, also, I think one of the other outcomes we should discuss for a second is a lot of the protesters were also arrested uh, during peaceful protests, which was just wrong. We still have the First Amendment in this country, I believe. (laughs) Having said that... um, I think after your testimony, they they removed those citations. Am I, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The other main point in my testimony and the testimony of many others is that um, the folks that they arrested that night, the 80-plus folks that they arrested, were peaceful. Hang on. Can we talk about that for a second, Lamar? They arrested 80, 80 people. That is astronomical. Wow. Yeah, it's the numbers and it's the people that they arrested. I mean, they herded and what they call kettled peaceful protesters who were already ready to move on. It was the end of the protest. And they kettled these folks onto a bridge. And then who did they arrest? They arrested the people that stayed till the end of the protest, who are mm-hmm. the leaders of the protest, the clergy right. that were there to make sure that um, they formed a human barrier between the protest and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. The same clergy mm-hmm. that had an agreement with law enforcement that we will keep these protests peaceful. And sacramental um, protests are notoriously peaceful. We don't have a problem with violence in our protests in Sacramento like other places. So they arrested <laughs> media. They arrested the media. They arrested clergy. They arrested the leaders of the protest. And that was after several days where protesters were in the media saying that we are upset with Sacramento law enforcement for shooting and killing Stefan Clark. So the police were riled up and then they, they, their claimed excuse was that some cars were vandalized, but yet they know that the people arrested had nothing to do with that vandalism, even if it did occur. And right. so there's, so there's that one problem that it's a, it's a, horrible arrest inconsistent with our values, inconsistent with the policies of the police department and their agreement with the clergy. So that's one thing. But the second part of this, which is, um, you know, we have to pay special attention to, is that when you arrest these folks, you make it less likely they're going to come back. When you arrest the clergy, you make them ineffective in keeping the peace. If, If you arrest the peaceful leaders, what's going to happen? The law, in the long term, you are going to put the city and law enforcement more at risk if you put the mm-hmm. peacekeepers in jail and if you keep them at home. So it's a okay. bad policy on the law, and it's also a bad policy for your own self-interest. It's just bad all the way around. I agree. You uh, end up replacing the peaceful folks with uh, folks that might be less peaceful. I think that's definitely a, a, a probable outcome. So um, speaking of this whole situation with the way um, the state, California state, not just not just on the city and county level, but on the state level, has been pretty, um, quote unquote, tough on crime for a long time now, even though we are supposed to be a very blue state. Again, we've adapted that same sort of rhetoric and policy that has been infiltrating the entire um, country. So thankfully we no longer have private prisons in the state of California, but I would like to go back for a moment and talk about Kamala Harris because she never ceased to disappoint me as attorney general. I voted for her because I thought, which was wrong of me to think this, I should have investigated her DA record more closely before 
I cast that vote, but I was very disappointed because I thought she would actually make some changes and she did the opposite. Uh, I think my initial anger with her happened when she, her office defended the um, involuntary servitude positions. You know, SCOTUS had, um, I, I think it was SCOTUS had come back and said that we were in violation of the cruelty um, part of the constitution because our prisons were so overcrowded. But, but uh, that aside, I was just appalled that the reason given was that it was going to disrupt our labor pool. Are you kidding me? How is that a moral position? I, uh, you know, and then after she took slack for it, she said that she didn't know about it, but I find that impossible to believe. I can't imagine that she didn't know what her attorneys were doing. I just can't. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, there's a long list of disagreements I have with uh, uh, Senator Harris yeah. on some of the policies that she instituted as, as a prosecutor and then as an attorney general, specific to the sixth community, you know, where, uh, that I'm a member of, and also um, in general. But I also got to admit, I do have some hesitancy in criticizing um, African-American elected officials and women that are, you know, first out of the gate in different elected positions. And I know that some of my progressive folks might uh, disagree with me here, but mm -hmm. it's hard for them to get elected. And they often choose a path which leads to election. And they do, you know, we should not ignore some of the incremental gains while we also criticize the things that should be criticized. But we need to be careful about condemning the person when you know, the path they're following is one of the toughest paths there is around. You know, for an African-American woman to become prosecutor, to become AG, um, in the environment that existed then, if she was consistent with all of the policies we had, her election would have been impossible. And if her election opens the door for a more progressive African-American woman to follow, I'm, I'm not going to agree with their policies. I'm still going to go on record and critiquing them as hard as I can. But what I'm not going to do is condemn the person because I think, um, you know, you need to walk a mile or walk a career in their shoes before you condemn mm -hmm. her. Right. Um, I understand what you're saying. I don't necessarily disagree, but I do think we we can condemn the policy for sure. I actually have a question that yeah. because I think um, I'm a big believer and I hear what you're saying, but I'm a big, big believer uh, more so now than ever before that, that no group is monolithic. No community is monolithic in its beliefs. And you'll have a wide variance of um, political leanings within a group. And I also realized from, I want to say from the Obama election forward, I began to realize that as, as the left, as and liberals, I, I identify as a leftist, not necessarily as a liberal, but that's my academic brain talking because the way you use that term in international relations is quite different. But um, I digress. But I also think that as as the left, we tend to to think that the black community is much more um, liberal than what it is. And, and invariably, there's a lot of conservative beliefs within that community. And I also worry about the fact that and I've seen this time and time again, where a lot of liberals chastise uh, black folks for having opinions 
that they don't think fit the spectrum of what black folks should have. Does that make sense? And I think that's very racist um, to do that because you're now taking away an individual's agency, right? Um, I think that exists within most within most communities. I mean, if you look at you know my yeah. sick community, you know we're a, a faith based community, and we uh, from yeah. the numbers I've seen and the voter registration I've seen in California, the Sacramento area in particular, we are overwhelmingly Democrat. But if you take a look at our individual policies which we support, they're not overwhelmingly progressive. There's a strong conservative streak within faith-based communities, right, whether right. they're African-American or Filipino or Sikh or Muslim or whatever. So you have to honor those differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you do have to honor those differences. And time and time again, I guess, I'm disappointed to see that that's not the case. And look, it's a sticky situation. I understand that a lot of folks... Uh, are afraid to say anything because of that reason. They don't want to um, get themselves in a situation where they're being less than, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Look, if you're taking away an individual's agency, you're not be, you're not fighting racism. You can't fight racism by telling anybody from any community that's been disenfranchised how they're supposed to feel about that disenfranchisement, if that makes sense. So that's what I'm sort of trying to get at. No, I, I, I was just going to say that I agree with you, that people have to be given the allowance to speak their mind in good faith. You know, as an example, you know, the, the testimony that you mentioned that I did in front of the Sacramento City Council, you know, I spoke my truth, but I didn't speak yeah. as a representative of the Sikh community or the Punjabi community or the South Asian community. I spoke as myself because even though I might lead my community on some issues, I know that some issues were not all in agreement. And and I've taken some criticism from my community since that testimony, sure. but um, I tell them, look, I'm not speaking. I'm not speaking at that time for you. I'm speaking for me. And we people have to be given that freedom. No, and you know what? That's also a fair point, Amar. I think there's a lot more pressure involved when you are part of a community that's not the plurality. There's pressure there every time you speak because you're going to be judged as a member of that community. And that is a pressure that white people never have to face. And I think it's part of the problem in the United States with why um, why just this stuff perpetuates itself because the the singular members of each community are judged are used to judge the entire community if you're non-white whereas if you're white the opposite is true and i i just think that's that's a truism of the united states and it's unfortunate because it just perpetuates a system of of racism really um for lack of a better word and it's a problem so that's okay so now that we've gotten philosophical and i'm loving this conversation my question is, how do you go about um, legitimately criticizing individuals' actions? Because I think that that's important. I know for me, uh, recently, we've had a lot of, of examples with APAC in Israel and the Jewish folks in the United States. And I think a lot of people don't realize that most leftist Jews do not agree with APAC and they do not agree with Likud or BB or home party or a lot of the fascist uh, far right segments of Israeli um, government. So, but everybody wants to believe that that's false. And if you criticize any of those things, you're automatically tagged as anti-Semitic. but this is, uh, this is what we call Hospora, which means explaining it's, it's a way of propaganda of making 
this uh, propaganda argument that if you criticize Israel, you're criticizing all Jewish people, ergo you're anti-Semitic. It's a way for them to control the conversation. So I think that's just but one example of, of this broader philosophical conversation. So we need to be careful, obviously, because those things can intersect. But we also can't Teflon coat individuals who aren't behaving well or doing bad things in the world. We can't Teflon coat them from criticism because I think that's also dangerous. If we never criticize the wrong behavior, ergo, if I don't say... Or if we don't say that um, if Israel goes into Hebron and they kill a 16-year-old and the IDF does nothing but witness it and then turn around and arrest the Palestinian protesters, that's a wrong immoral action. And those folks shouldn't be Teflon-coded from that criticism simply because they're Jewish. You see what I'm saying? It's tricky. Yeah, I I, I do hear what you're saying. And I... I think we we need to step back a little bit and realize this is not just a Israel-Palestine conceptual or political problem. In that this problem, you know, and and I should say, when it comes to this issue, you know, Palestine-Israel, I'm on a path and I'm learning more than I've been involved in this California Democratic Party at any time in my life. When I learn about it, I see it from my own perspective and I see the same problems in you know, the part of the world that I'm more familiar with, which is South exactly. Asia and India, because we have the same exactly. dynamic there. If, if, you, if yep. you criticize India, then you're anti-India. But what yeah. I think we need to recognize, what, what I think we need to, yeah, it is very frustrating. And, you know, there's, there's religious um, um, depth to that. And there's, um, you know, long-standing um, historical genocide, which underlies both in India and in uh, mm. in Palestine, um, so I think yeah. so. I think you need to we need to recognize that the folks that say that's anti-Semitic, they believe that, and they have a pain in their heart which has, has you know transcended generations. And you know, I as a Sikh from Northern India and and, and Pakistan um, understand that pain. So if if we understand that pain with we can acknowledge it even though we disagree with it and and when we have these online discussions facebook or twitter we need to you know step back a little bit acknowledge the pain and then we'll be better at persuading whoever it is on our point and maybe recognize that you can't persuade that person but if you're going to get upset with that person you're actually losing your real audience who are the people listening in, watching, scrolling through, swiping through that aren't on either side, that don't have, you know, the, you know, the, the polar position. Um, and if, if you, if you take time to recognize that pain, you're actually going to be more likely to persuade the people that you're trying to persuade. I, yes, I think that's true for those that are engaging in an honest discourse, but I also think there's a large section that is not, meaning, let me, let me be really clear. Like, for example, um, Eli Valley, who is uh, a progressive leftist Jewish guy, was accused of being anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic from, by, uh, what's her name, the girl on The View, Megan, uh, Megan McCain. So here you have somebody that's not Jewish calling a Jewish person anti-Semitic. That to me is just completely bullshit. 
And I saw this after the Elon uh, Omar situation, I saw a lot of that going on. And I think, um, and I don't think this is something that's solely endemic to this conversation. I think it crosses boundaries into the BLM conversation, into the India conversation. I think um, folks try to weaponize certain aspects of a conversation because it it uh, plays out in their favor, whether they are genuinely believing it or not, you know, and it's very effective for the reasons that you just talked about, those that really are in pain, uh, that we want to be cognizant of and we want to uh, be there for them. You have these other players that could care less that are using that to their advantage in a way, like the way Megan McCain is. So there's, um, there's that going on. And I think her underlying motivation is she's a Christian Zionist, which is this kind of weird evangelical how do you describe this? They they think that Israel needs to exist and all the Jews need to go back to Israel before the second company second coming happens. And that's the only reason they support Israel. They don't care about the Jewish people. And in fact, they'll go on to say, well, if the Jews don't convert to Christianity, they're all going to perish in hell, which is like, wow, really? Well, let, let me, let me, let me interrupt you there. And I, I think yeah, yeah. how you, I think how you phrase that is actually a, a symptom of problem. Is that if if you have one actor, that you, uh, McCain, that you think um, is acting in bad faith, and Lord knows there are bad faith actors out there, right? I haven't examined her enough to know, you know, where she is. But what I can't think you, you know, what I, I can't think, actor. right? So what, but what I cannot uh, agree with is when you ascribe to all people of her faith that that's weird or it's improper or their faith is somehow you know, to be respected less. I mean, there's, they have a good faith belief in theirs, as I do in mine, as others do in theirs. And we have to be very careful about, you know, putting these, these broad-based um, characterizations on a faith just because it doesn't happen to be our own. And, and I speak, you know, on this issue, I speak, you know, some, from some learning that I've gone through. You know, when we see uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter folk posts about, oh, yeah, um, I don't like it when other black people do this. There's a tendency because we agree with them to pile on and say, oh yeah, I think I also think that would be. But what I've learned is that right. as an ally, and I think McCain falls into this group, is that this is not your role. You know, you have no basis to tell people of Jewish faith that they're anti-Semitic. We'll take care of that within our group. And you just exactly you know, right. know your role, stay out, stay out of it. That's right. I agree. It's an internal community conversation, which is why it really offends me when I see folks like, and it's not just her, it's, it's been a bunch of them, calling this uh, Jewish people anti-Semitic because they had the audacity to say, I'm a leftist Jewish person. This is what I believe. And it doesn't fit into the Hasbara. So, and I know that this has to happen across the board. And I think it's really difficult for somebody who isn't a member of any of these communities to really understand the internal, um, the internal feelings in regards to that. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and I think, I don't know. I don't know how you get around it. It's a really sticky situation because I think, well, let me say this. I think the best way to get around it is often enough to just listen and observe and maybe, uh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Because oftentimes I see, like, yeah, I know, yeah, with the ADOS folks, they've been really arguing lately amongst themselves about immigration and xenophobia. I mean, and I read this stuff and it's, it's, this to me is an internal conversation and it's not something that warrants me having an opinion on, <laughs> 
You know what I'm saying? That's out of respect. And I think whatever internal community conflicts happen, um, the community will will work that stuff out and present their allies with what they feel uh, the means by which they can best be helped in their um, in their movements, so to speak. But this is, you know, it's a it's a difficult situation because oftentimes intersectional uh, intersectionality, which we have a lot of on the left, doesn't always jive. You know, we have different community outcomes that we're looking at, and we have to find a way to build solidarity and unity, in my opinion, if we want to um, improve all of our lives. And and, um, so, well, let's talk about the California state primary. We've now moved it up to March. Um, So we're way ahead of where we used to be. And we used to always be, I think, sort of an afterthought to... um, to the DNC because it was so late in the system and they felt like even though we were a large state with a lot of with a lot of votes, we just um, happened so late that it was probably already going to be decided before then. Um, so do you are you glad that we moved it up to March? And what do you think Bernie's chances are of winning this time around? Yeah, the March primary, sometimes be careful what you wish for. I mean, we've got, it's great on the presidential side, but all these down-ballot elections that are moved up to March, we got a lot of work to do all of a sudden. Yeah, but, uh, you know, putting aside, yeah, put aside the, the local issues for a second, I think uh, uh, Bernie's in a great uh, position. He has yeah. a built-in workforce, every single district, every assembly district, every Senate district, every council um, area. There's people on the ground that are willing to do the work. And we have, you know, we've learned from experience that those people are invaluable. They are worth their weight in gold. Um, you can't buy those kind of people. Um, getting out the vote is everything in a March election. And, and right. Bernie's ready to take advantage of that. California will act because of, you know, we have our early voting by mail absentee ballot. California yeah. will actually be voting at the same time that Iowa is voting. There will probably be yeah. more vote. There will probably be more vote, you know, in the mail in California than maybe in Iowa because we're doing such a good job at early voting these days. Yeah. So let's talk about the early voting and the mail-in ballot. Uh, situation. I don't know. Are you aware that the ACLU is suing the state of California for throwing out uh, mail-in ballots because they uh, were saying they couldn't verify the signature and instead of contacting the voter and giving them the opportunity to validate their ballots, they just tossed them without telling the voters. Have you been following that at all? Across the state, according to different estimates, between 33 and 45,000 voters have had their ballots invalidated, and many of them don't know it. That's why in November, a lawsuit was filed against the California Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, saying it was unconstitutional and voters had the right to be warned. I haven't, I haven't followed the pleading. I've just followed the issue, and I think the ACLU is, is right to drill down on that. I think it's particularly a problem where they decide that the ballots don't matter because they wouldn't have made a difference in the outcome. I, I think yeah. we all agree we want every we want every ballot counted, whether the account whether it made a difference or not. We want to count. I agree. You know, I know this is an LA County thing. I think it's exclusive to LA County, actually. But I was really disappointed to see that Alex Padilla was going to argue the case against the ACLU as opposed to just acquiescing to their point. Because I think the ACLU is, I agree with you, is correct. And whether or not it would make a difference in the outcome doesn't matter. The point is, is you've now 
disenfranchise these voters and it's not right. Yeah, I think as Democrats, we should always be validating every vote, counting every vote. And that's who we are. And, and I think that the ACLU is on the right side of that. And I, yes, it costs more money. And yes, it is difficult and it requires time and, and there's uncertainty. Elections are decided later um, when you do all those things. But it's worth right. it in, in reinforcing the vigor of our democracy. When the headline is 20,000, 100,000, 200,000 votes aren't counted, people tend not to trust the system. And, and that, yeah. we, we got to avoid the headline. Yeah, Amara, I agree with you. It's about the integrity of the system. And, and when voters stop trusting the system, it just is very unhealthy for the democracy. Completely agree with you on that. Um, let's talk about, lastly, I want to ask you about Gavin Newsom, who this week uh, stopped cap- capital punishment in the state. Um, I applaud this decision. I know we, we could have the, the philosophical or the theoretical conversation on whether the death penalty is is good or bad. But um, I think tangential to that, and I think the bigger point of what he's doing is this, and I agree with Gavin on this. I think the state cannot be trusted with that power, and they've shown us time and time again that they cannot be trusted with that power. Not only do we have innocent people in wrongly convicted in jail, we have innocent people that have been killed um, for crimes they didn't commit. And we've also, um, our entire system is based on whether or not somebody has enough money to buy themselves a legitimate defense. We have folks that are um, sitting in jail because they simply can't post bail. They might be completely innocent as well. So I think putting a moratorium on capital punishment is absolutely the correct position to have. But what are your thoughts on that, especially as an attorney? Look, if we recognize the inequalities on race and income in our legal system, then we have to also acknowledge that it occurs for those um, that are on death row. You know, our country and California, with some regularity, kills folks that were innocent. And if that's true, we have to stop it. But it's not just that. It's, It's not just that we kill people that are innocent. It is also that we seek the death penalty more often against those that are poor, and that are of right. color. And if that's true, then we have to stop it. And, and I think there's nobody really objectively or critically analyzing the facts anymore that thinks those things are untrue. It is just simply a fact that our system you know, applies justice unequally. It's true for the yeah. death penalty. So we have to stop killing people um, that, that, you know, that are innocent and that are not in the same position of others that don't get put on death row. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. You know, and I had some folks sort of challenge me. I was surprised other Democrats challenged me on this position this week. And I sort of, my response to, to them saying, but what if these, you know, folks are murdered, whatever. My point was this, is like, we, we could have that theoretical conversation about just deserts or whatever it is that you're getting at here. But I think it's the insurmountable, insurmountable data has shown us that the state has killed innocent people, and that should be objectionable to anybody, even if you believe that the death penalty on a moral side is an okay thing. I don't, but that's, you know, I can understand how some people do. The, the, the fact of the matter is you've killed innocent people, and once you've done that, you're as bad as 
the folks that you are protesting against. You're saying this person's a murderer. Well, now the state is a murderer. They just wrongly killed somebody that was innocent. So it's a, I don't know. I'm glad he did that. I think it was the right decision. Um, do you think going forward, yeah, the, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that I think it was the right decision, but I do think that the rollout could have been done a little bit differently. Um, I don't okay. think this is, I don't think this is a, an issue where we should be high-fiving. And I didn't like what I saw on social media about the, the celebration from the progressive community that I think it is the right decision, but I think there could have been a lot more work from uh, the progressive movement and particularly Gavin Newsom talking about the victims and, yeah. and the kind of turmoil that we put them through when we tell them that we're not going to kill the person responsible, the person that we know, you know, some of these, some of these people that are, that are, some of these people that are getting off of death row, we know they are horrible murderers. They've tortured and killed, um, you know, young children. And I think it is a horrible lack of sensitivity from the governor's office when we don't center that pain. And particularly on social media, mm. when when we're high fiving yeah. on that, it's it's a bad look. I mean, we need to feel for those yeah. people that are going through this right now. Amar, you're 100 percent correct. Um, that is really important because there are going to be hurt feelings there. But I also have to wonder. Um, I wonder how many of the families, because this is a conversation I haven't had. I wonder how many of the families of the victims are okay with life in prison as opposed to capital punishment. They might have um, their own moral set standards that might differ. I don't know. Um, but I do think you're correct. I think that's, I guess in my mind, that's why this is a conversation about the theoretical part about the fact the state hasn't gotten this right. And that's the overarching problem as opposed to where, which side, because I, you're, you're correct. I know some progressives, which is surprising to me that are actually fine with capital punishment, you know, for whatever reason. So but at the same time, I think, you know, why is it, um, I could never understand this, Amar. Why is it that sometimes DAs knowingly withhold information or knowingly go after prosecutions that they're not entirely sure are valid? They do it anyway. And I guess for me, I think that's a really massive ethical problem. And I'm not clear on why they don't see why do they why do they need their prosecution rates to be so high? Why is that a thing when their goal should be just to serve justice, whatever that looks like, period? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think there's a role for district attorneys to pursue cases they don't um, you know, that they don't hundred percent believe in and that they trust the system, they trust the jurors, that if both sides are playing their role, they'll present the evidence and the jury will make um, a better call than maybe the district attorney. So I, I don't think that a district attorney has to be, yeah, I don't think a district attorney has to be convinced that every case they pursue is absolutely, um, or that they're right on every case they pursue, that they trust the jury system. That said, obviously, the district attorney and the jury make mistakes all the time. And mm -hmm. if we're going to trust the system, we got to fix the system so it doesn't have these kind of systemic problems. Yeah, indeed. And it seems to me that as a prosecutor, they do have some leeway in what they choose to take to court and what they don't choose to take to court. And that has a certain lens that they look through to make those decisions. 
And I think part of the reason a lot of a lot of there's a lot of anger and mistrust out there is not getting back to our early conversation when you don't prosecute police of murder when they've clearly committed murder, but then you choose to maybe prosecute this other case, which has dicey evidence. You know, we had the situation I know uh, up in the San Francisco Bay Area a couple years ago where the drug testing, the the lab scandal where they were um, putting in these tests as positive when they were actually false and they tried to cover up the scandal. I mean, that's just but one example. So I, I don't think that the population in the state of California trust the system anymore because of of these two things that are going on sort of at the same time. And, um, you know, this is stuff, again, I keep thinking this is stuff that's probably gone on for a long time and we just weren't aware of it in the way we are now. And I think just having that awakening, like, oh my God, like, how is this just, how is this justice is sort of a sobering moment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we, I think most of us probably believe that African Americans received a raw deal, which horribly understates how which horribly understates how horrible um, the justice system was to them. But we also, I think, a lot of us had this belief that okay, yeah, that's really bad, but otherwise it's not, it's okay. But the truth is that the system, um, when we enforce transparency, the system fails in a lot of ways, and we're just now coming to terms with how it needs to be fixed and that, you know, there's a lot of folks in jail that shouldn't be in jail. So do you have a more optimistic outlook that we will be able to fix these things in the next couple of years? My faith informs me um, of a a term we call chardikala. Chardikala means Mm. eternal optimism. You know, we have been, we are, my community has, dealt with genocide and oppression because we're in you know, a 1%, 2% of uh, the South Asian diaspora, right? So um, I take that with me into everything I do. So I think you organize, you lobby elected officials, and you change, but I also know that things don't happen easy and that you and that folks may die and suffer and families destroyed along the way, but we keep on working to to try to get things better. Um, I know there's others that are more cynical, but, uh, you know, I still have hope. I think that's an absolutely beautiful sentiment. Internal optimism is a good thing. I'm going to have to adopt it. Um, so, Amar, if folks want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? So it's Amar Shergill, C-A, A-M-A-R-S-H-E-R-G-I-L-L-C-A. For California. Right. Oh.